Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Welcome back, everyone. How you doing, Rojo? How's, how's it been since the last episode? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, it has been a, a very busy period uh, with a lot of events, which is always great uh, because that allowed us to be in community and talk with the with people outside of our classroom. Um, yeah. Today, uh, precisely, we're going to be talking about a recent event that we participated, right? Yes, an in-person event, which was very exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's the, actually that's the first in-person event that I've been at, right? Uh, most events these days are happening via Zoom because it's the because of safety concerns, of course. But this one was in person, and and and, and it was uh, strange, but also cool to be there. We are with people and have the energy of the audience yes. right there. Yes, that energy, absolutely, and we've got. We've got a virtual event coming up soon. We're doing an, a, uh, an interview fireside chat with BMCC at the beginning of November. Through that, through that. Yeah, that is happening as well. I'm really happy that, yeah, we're going to be engaging in conversation with other people outside of, outside of Baruch and, uh, yeah, and with other students. I think it's going to be a student center event. So it's going to be really interesting to engage like and, and talk about like podcasts and, and how are we conceiving of uh, this uh, work with Latin exhibition. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it for sure. So as you mentioned, we we did an in-person event with someone that we are going to be discussing today. And so we're doing something a little bit differently with this episode, right? Um, rather than go into our own analysis of the work in question, which is the undocumented Americans, we're going to let the author speak for herself. Yeah. So as we were saying, yeah, we recently had the opportunity to speak with author Carla Cornejo Villavicencio about her book, The Undocumented Americans. Uh, today, we're going to share our interview with her from the Harman Writer in Residence talk that took place at Baruch College on October 21st. But before we get to that interview, we'll provide a brief bi biographical introduction of the author and share a reading that she did of the introduction to her book. Yeah, and at the end, we will recap our thoughts on, on the event and, as usual, include recommendations for memoirs and other works of creative nonfiction by Latinas. All right, let's get into it. Okay, so a little bit about the author. Carla Cornejo Villavicencio is an Ecuadorian-American writer and the author of The Undocumented Americans, which was published in 2020. She has written about immigration, music, beauty, and mental illness for various publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Daily Beast, and many more. Yeah, she was born in Ecuador in 1989, and when she was a year and a half old, her parents immigrated to the U.S., leaving her with family. A few years later, her parents brought her to the U.S., and the family Cornejo Villavicencio, her parents, and her brother lived in Queens. She graduated with a bachelor's degree from Harvard in 2011 and believes she is one of the first undocumented immigrants to do so. She's currently a Ph.D. candidate in American studies at Yale, and she was chosen as an Emerson Collective Fellow and is also currently serving as Baruch College's very own Harmon Writer in Residence for the fall of 2021. She began writing her book, The Undocumented Americans, the morning after the 2016 presidential election. And it was published in March of 2020 and shortlisted for the National Book Award for Nonfiction in October of the same year. Corneja Villavicencio obtained her green card in 2020 and currently lives in New Haven, Connecticut with her partner and her dog. <laughs> That's what she yeah. has in, in the beginning of her book. So I had, I had yeah. to add that. 
Yeah, since we were in person, I also saw her uh, tattoos. That her tattoos with the dog. Yeah, she she has like uh, many tattoos with the with the dog. So that's important to her, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> As we will hear from her reading of the introduction of her book, this book is not traditional nonfiction, nor does she tell the story of dreamers in it. She recognizes that they are, in her words, commendable young people and of cool, but talks about wanting to tell the stories of those undocumented migrants that we don't hear about as often. All right, so here's the reading for you. On the night of the 2016 presidential election, I spent a long time deciding what to wear. I'd be staying home to watch the returns with my partner, but the Comey letter had come out in mid-October and I was convinced Trump was going to win. I'd always admired the women on the Titanic who reportedly drowned wearing their finest clothing and furs and jewels, and the violinists who kept playing even as the ship sank. I wore a burgundy velvet dress with sheer lace back paneling, a ribbon in my hair, red lipstick, and a leopard print faux fur coat over my shoulders. I poured myself a goblet of wine. I understood that night would be my end, but I would not be ushered to an internment camp in sweatpants. The returns hadn't finished coming in when my father, who is undocumented, called me to tell me it was the end times. I threw myself into bed without washing off my makeup, without brushing my teeth. I had a 4 a.m. wake-up call. A few hours later, I took a bunch of trains to New Jersey to meet an oceanographer I was profiling for a New York magazine. We took a boat into the Hudson and sped by the feet of the Statue of Liberty. Fuck, I said. This will appear sentimental. Still, I asked him to take my picture in front of it, and I smiled at the camera, the strong winds blowing my hair in my face. It seemed safe somehow to be there at Lady Liberty's feet. I got off the boat and on my phone emailed an agent I'd, be friend I'd been friendly with since I was a kid and told him I was ready to write the book, the book, and he said okay. When I was a senior at Harvard, I wrote an anonymous essay for the Daily Beast about what they wanted to call my dirty little secret, that I was undocumented. It got me some attention, it was a different time, and agents wrote me asking if I wanted to write a memoir. A news program asked me to f film me while I fucking packed up my dorm to show, I guess, that I was leaving Harvard without any plans, without even the promise of a career. This was before DACA. I was angry. A memoir? I was 21. I wasn't fucking Barbara Streisand. I'd been writing professionally since I was 15, but only about music. I wanted to be the guy in high fidelity, and I didn't want my first book to be a rueful tale about being a sickly Victorian orphan with tuberculosis who didn't have a social security number, which is what the agents all wanted. The guy who eventually ended up becoming my agent respected that, did not find an interchangeable immigrant to publish a sad book, and we kept in touch. I was the first person who wrote him on the morning of November 9th, 2016. That morning, I received a bunch of emails from people who were really freaked out about Trump winning, and the emails essentially were offers to hide me in their second houses in Vermont, or the woods somewhere, or to stay in their basements. Shit, I told my partner, they're trying to Anne Frank me. By this point, I'd been pursuing a PhD at Yale because I needed the health insurance and had read a lot of books about migrants and I hated a lot of the books. I couldn't see my family in them because I saw my parents as more than laborers, as more than sufferers or dreamers. I thought I could write something better, something that rang true, and I thought I was the best person to do it. I was just crazy enough because if you're going to write a book about undocumented immigrants in America, the story, the full story, you have to be a little bit crazy and you certainly can't be enamored by America, not still. That disqualifies you. This book is not a traditional nonfiction book. Names of persons have all been changed. Names of places have all been changed. Physical descriptions have all been changed. Or have they? I took notes by hand during interviews. After the legal review, I destroyed the notes. I chose to not use a recorder because I did not want to intimidate my subjects. Children's, children of immigrants whose parents do not speak English learn how to interpret very young. And I honored that rite of passage and skill by translating the interviews on the spot. I approached translating the way a tr literary translator would approach translating a poem, not the way someone would approach translating a business letter. I hate the way journalists translate the words of Spanish speakers in their stories. They transliterate and make us sound dumb, like we all have a first grade vocabulary. I found my subjects to be warm, funny, dry, evasive, philosophical, weird, annoying, etc. And I tried to convey that tone in the translations. When you are an undocumented immigrant with undocumented family, writing about undocumented immigrants, and I can only speak for myself and my ghosts, it feels unethical to put on the drag of a journalist. It is also painful to focus on the art, but impossible to process the world as anything but art. The slightest gust of the wind bruises, Trump's voice, Stephen Miller's face, 
the red hat, but also before that, the deli counter, the construction corner, the hotel room, the dishwashing station, the dollar store, the late night English classes at the local community college. And it's a pain I'm sure is felt by the 11 million undocumented. So I write as if it were. I attempt to write from a place of shared trauma, shared memories, shared pain. This is a snapshot in time, a high energy imaging of trauma brain. This book is a work of creative nonfiction rooted in careful reporting, translated as poetry, shared by chosen family and sometimes hard to read. Maybe you won't like it. I didn't write it for you to like it. And I did not set out to write anything inspirational, which is why there are no stories of dreamers. They're commendable young people, and I truly owe them my life, but they occupy outsized attention in our politics. I wanted to tell the stories of people who work as day laborers, housekeepers, construction workers, dog walkers, delivery men, people who don't inspire hashtags or t-shirts, but I wanted to learn about them as the weirdos we, are, we all are outside of our jobs. This, is, this book is for everybody who wants to step away from the buzzwords in immigration, the talking heads, the kids in graduation caps and gowns, and read about the people underground. Not heroes, randoms, people, characters. This book is for young immigrants and the children of immigrants. I want them to read this book and feel what I imagine young people must have felt like when they heard Nirvana smells like teen spirit for the first time in Seattle in 1991. I grew up a Jehovah's Witness, and I remember what I felt like listening to Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time. I went into the bathroom and chopped off my hair with my mom's fabric scissors and messaged a boy who was not a Jehovah's Witness, not allowed, and told him to meet me at the Virgin Megastore in Times Square to give me my first kiss. This book will give you permission to let go. This book will give you permission to be free. This book will move you to be punk when you need to be punk, and it's time to fuck shit up. So we hope you enjoyed that reading of the introduction. If you haven't had a chance, please grab her book, The Undocumented Americans. It's available in print, ebook, and audiobook. Uh, I I initially listened to the audiobook version of Undocumented Americans. So, you know, I was familiar with the sound of Cornejo Villavicencio reading her book, but it was exciting to experience it in person, right? That, that it had a different impact. I really got a feel for the emotions behind her words when she read that introduction. You know, it is just sitting next to her on that stage as she's doing it. Uh, you get a different impact there. You know, it was like the anger behind this idea that she at age 21 should write a memoir, you know, what? and then that that assertive declaration that she didn't write the book for us to like it, but instead to tell the stories of those stories that are often forgotten. And And I heard in it these moments of determination, right, that sort of gave insight as to what we might find in the following pages. So all that really stuck with me. I say even more so than when I initially listened to the audiobook the first time. What about you? What were your thoughts? Yeah, after the event, I confirmed that as a literary figure within the mainstream publishing world, Cornejo Villavicencio uses uh, public appearances to discuss topics and share ideas that interest her uh, or that she finds relevant, regardless of the question journalists or professor like us ask her. <laughs> uh, she vents interviews to her needs and concern and is not afraid of generating tensions. I feel like she embodies an anti-institutional counter discourse yeah, that resists easy feel-good narratives or propaganda. Yeah, her views about migration, mental health, and about her own life and writing process are very complex, and she honors that at all times. Yeah, I think that very much comes across in the interview that you all are about to hear. I mean, you know, I, there was one question that we asked her, and she's like, I never thought of that. That, that. that was not something that crossed my mind. But she did she was able to add to that discussion based on what you said. She She kind of turned it to address topics that that did concern her in relation to that topic. So it was it was really fascinating to see how she took these questions and and interpreted them and turned them around to answer them, you know, in her very own way. Yeah, she, she use, definitely uses the platform she's given to express her views on, on these different and, and complicated topics. But she always like on the stage or on the platform in order to communicate what she needs, uh, what she considers to be important. Mm -hmm. And it definitely seemed to resonate with the audience from what we could tell. So without any further ado, here is our interview with Carla Cornejo Villavicencio from October 21st, 2021. 
So I wanted to start out with saying, you know, I really appreciate the way that you avoid romanticizing the traumas of undocumented migrants in your book. It, you know, as the person introducing you said, it really challenges the ways in which we've historically seen these stories being told, right? So I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about your approach to to telling this story in this way. Um, hi, everyone. Um, can my students raise their hands? <laughs> uh, okay. I'm going to ask for no more applause. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just because I, I, just because I don't like it. Um, so my students, um, I just didn't recognize you because, um, I find it a little creepy to, to, for me to, um, recognize you just from your eyes. So I have chosen to not recognize you from your eyes. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I get asked that question a lot and, and I sort of sincerely think that, um, that I, I'm confused by how, many stories there are of undocumented people or immigrants in general where where there is a um, a tendency to caricature because I think you have to be a really bad writer to do it. I mean, I, I, um, I uh, you know, when I set out to write something, I try to write something that I, don't, I think hasn't been done before. Um, I, I try to write sentences that I think are good. I try to write sentences that I, I think don't all sound like something that have been done over and over and over again. And, you know, I think fundamentally, if you are writing about a person, any person, and you think that it sounds a little bit leaden, or if it sounds, you know, if, if, if it seems like they're a paper doll, then you, you try again, right? And so I think that it, it takes a bad writer um, or it takes someone who doesn't have anything to say, but decides that it's a topic that they want to write about for reasons that are probably pretty dark. Um, and, and then they go about it. Um, and the, the reasons that I, that I think are pretty dark probably have to do with like pretty political reasons, right? So I decided to write about um, these people because they're people that I care about and because I had something to say. If you decide to write about people because you're trying to prove that they're human, um, it's gonna be bad writing because you're fundamentally already starting with a political purpose and a hypothesis, and it's you're taking like a scientific approach to writing, which means the writing is gonna come out like in a social scientific way. And I think that that is not like good literary writing and people can smell that and they're going to respond in like a this smells like social sciency so <laughs> if you just decide to write and describe right like you describe like anything and then then they're going to read to you like people and then you're not going to romanticize them but you're not going to villainize them either because all you're doing is describing but i think setting out to have a political purpose being like i'm going to prove that these people are not evil fundamentally shows i think that you must on some level think that that they must not fully be people because it's not obvious on its face that they are. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <clears throat> um, all right, so our, our next question here, and I think part of your first answer touched on it a little bit, but maybe uh, if you'd be able to talk about this a little more, what was the reason you had for integrating your own personal story and experiences, you know, with the ethnographies of these other undocumented Americans? You know, it almost comes across as a, as a new genre. You know, you said you called it creative nonfiction, but it, it's, it's like part memoir, part ethnography, part uh, everything. I don't know. There's, there's a lot in there. So why do you think this works as an approach to tell these stories, not just in your writing process, but as a reader might receive it perhaps? Um, you know, one of the things I, I did, this is part of the, what I did with the translation too, is acknowledge that as a child of immigrants, like so many of us who are children of immigrants grew up translating for our parents and that is not just something that we did that was part of the survival for our families, but I think was important to how our brains developed and how our relationship uh, with the world came to be. And so something that I kind of replicated 
in the methodology of the book, but also in the structure of the book, was to um, replicate that relationship, which was like everything is mediated. Um, mm -hmm. So first, I mean, it would have been dishonest for me to pretend to take like an objective um, approach to telling these stories. But um, so I, you know, one thing I did with the translating was when I was speaking to somebody and they were speaking to me in Spanish, I translated on the spot. Um, and, you know, sometimes I took like notes if there was something that needed more attention, um, you know, but I translated on the spot because that is um, sort of like embodied the experience of being a child of immigrants and having that relationship to your parents and those being the stakes, um, but also um, telling my, my readers the, the story um, was also me being the conduit. And um, part of that is acknowledging that when you're translating for your parents, um, you're interjecting, you're sort of changing things as you go, you're putting yourself in the middle. You know, sometimes I would edit stuff, um, especially in the doctor's office, when my mom would be like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want that. And I'd be like, yes, yeah, she does, you know, um, <laughs> because I know better, right? And so um, it's, I think, children of immigrants, like, there was some, you know, I think some reviewers were like, is she changing details? Like, is she, what is she doing with the genre? But I think people like within the community, like they really understood immediately. And there was no question about trust or what is she doing? I think there was just like, you know, well, of, I mean, of course she changed this detail, right? I think there was a, um, and of course there's part of it comes with a, with a familiarity with like testimonio and stuff with Latin American writing. But I think that there's a, I think people really understood kind of implicitly what I was doing with, with, uh, you know, having the form replicate that, that concept. Thank yeah. you. Talking, uh, <coughs> talking about uh, translation and processes of translation, uh, I appreciate how in the chapter uh, Ground Zero, uh, Milton's refer memoirs, Sueño, Pesadilla, y Paraíso functions as a meter or a map to your own book. Uh, do you see it in, the, in this way? And how do you apply those concepts to your book? Sueño, pesadilla y paraíso. I had not seen it that way. But, you know, it's uh, all interpretations are legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, um, I would be making up an explanation. I had not thought about that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> That's fair. There is an act of writing, right? Like we have a character, right? That that it's writing, that it's uh, uh, trying to like uh, uh, create, right? A, a, a testimony, a, 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 a create a, a narrative that fits uh, uh, his needs, yeah, as a, as an undocumented. So I feel like that's why I see some parallel in, in I mean, well, with your work. The 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 themes of nightmare and dream are important i guess in the sense that like there's a lot of uh there's a lot of gesturing towards um you know the the american dream in the book mm -hmm. um and i've been asked so much about the american dream directly doing press for the book that i eventually had to well my partner who sort of is the intermediary between me and like interviewers like setting stuff up had to be like she's she can't be asked about the American dream anymore <laughs> um, because then I started getting sassy when I, when I was asked yeah. about the American dream um, where I was like, where people would be like, what do you think about the American dream? And I would be like, if I was going to answer that, I would do it to get paid and I would not answer for you. I would answer for the New Yorker. Um, <laughs> it was just like, I don't know. What do I think about the American dream? Nothing, everything like, um, the book was just like, you know, people have dreams and then most people don't get to achieve their dreams. And that's just the reality of adulthood. And I met a lot of older folks who, I also hate saying the word folks. It's so classist, right? Like, I know it's supposed to be like a, like a really left thing to say, like, like, you know, folks, but like, it's so classist. Like, it's usually like more elite people who say folks about people who are poor just something I've noticed, but so older people, um, 
older people uh, that I met in the book, they just always told me about the things that they wanted to do and they didn't get to do. And I wrote about that. And then I was younger and I reminded them of their kids and they still thought that their kids had a shot and they still thought that I had a shot. And I just looked at those odds and I was like, this doesn't add up. And then I had to talk to their kids because they looked at me. Um, there's like some song or maybe across several songs where Kendrick Lamar called himself anointed once. And I was like, this is how people view me. They view me as someone who was anointed because clearly something about me was chosen and I made it out. And therefore I have to go and like tell them prophecies, like tell them what, what is going to happen to their children and what is going to happen to our neighborhoods. And when I went across different places in the United States, that is what they wanted me to do. They wanted me to talk to their children and tell them, you know, how to alchemize what they had to turn it into what I had. And, you know, it's that- a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, um, it, that was, that's what the American dream is like, you know? If you make it out, then you have to, you want to have, help everyone get out, but then you also understand that there is, there is no out, right? Um, and so then the nightmare is understanding that people who are truly in poverty, people who are truly unable to afford cancer treatment, like I describe in the book, mm -hmm. people who are truly unable to seek, you know, to, to have their, their PTSD treated, like the people who are, you know, were the cleanup workers in Ground Zero, like I describe in the book, they are experiencing a nightmare. But if you are sort of um, spared from that, you know, like, like me or some of the dreamers, then you have to keep believing, you have to keep publicly believing in the, in the American dream because otherwise the whole thing falls apart. Thank you. And there's also like the telling of, of nightmares in the book. Yeah, I noticed that there's a, 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 a as a form, it's also the nightmare becomes also a, a, a poetics and a type of poetics in the book. Uh, I would like to continue with that a chapter, with the chapter on, on Ground Zero, right? And, and um, I, I, I was like thinking on one of the very impactful things from the, uh, that chapter in a specific, it's uh, how you describe the quote-unquote delivery voice and also how the labor in Ground Zero, uh, you describe it as a, 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 as a new plantation economy. Right, like a, as a, a as a replication of colonial structure, right? Uh, very old colonial structure. Uh, so, can you talk about that? About that that uh, uh, that notion of labor that you are presenting in in that chapter in Ground Zero? Um, I described a, like a, a system that happens during like national disasters. Um, like hurricanes or, you know, in this case, it was 9-11, where it's like there's there's just kind of like the system set up where um, people know that undocumented immigrants are around and like are willing and able to, um, you, you know, you make a call and then there are like the intermediaries between like um, the contractors and like the bosses, los patrones, and the undocumented people, the workers, the laborers. And the intermediaries are usually also Latinos, but like who have citizenship. And the undocumented uh, people who, are, who work, who are workers in these, in these natural disasters, are like the idea is that they, they will trust the Latinos with citizenship because they look like them. Like they look like us and they speak our language. So we think that they're less likely to take advantage of us. And the people in the middle, um, you know, I think if I can try to mentalize their experience, they are trying to, you know, be socially mobile and be less like the people at the bottom. And they are trying to profit. Um, but there is, um, 
and the manipulation of the bonds of kinship. Um, and that's very sad because when I talk to people who have been hurt by, you know, wage theft and, you know, um, being put in circumstances where their bodies are torn apart and they get, you know, like really sick from working in awful conditions after storms or, you know, just, you know, disasters. Um, they, they never really point to like white citizens, like Anglos or whatever. They always tell me that the people who abuse them, they tell me their names and they're always like Spanish last names. And that really hurts my feelings because, you know, you, you always think that we're looking out for each other. But when you talk to immigrants, and I'm sure people here who understand because our families talk, you, when you ask the people who hurt you, it, it's always our own. Um, but you also contextualize that and you understand why. And you understand that those people have been hurt too. And, um, you know, and, and hurt breeds hurt. And so, um, but they understood that too. But it's something that keeps happening where, where we, we think people that look like us are not going to hurt us. Uh, I would like to also talk about like uh, your the nuanced cases that you present uh, about uh, undocumented women. I'm thinking about Paloma, Esme, and even your own mother. And throughout your book, there is an inquiry about what does it mean to be a feminist and what is involved in migrant women's emancipation. And yeah, uh, can you talk about yeah your findings while uh, writing the book and how do these women challenge traditional ideas of motherhood, uh, sacrifice, or self-abnegation? Sure. Um, so that was one of the highlights of doing research for the book is that I met a lot of Latina women um, who were uh, they were like they were middle aged and. So first, like, um, okay, so first is that I thought that um, they were, we were, I was in situations where I ended up in their kitchens and they ended, up, they ended up cooking for me. And they were like, no, 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 sit down, sit down. Don't do anything. Like, I would, I would try to, like, help out in the kitchen. And they would be like, don't do anything. Don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. And I was like, um, you know, there's just something, you know, there's just, uh, there's, <laughs> there's just something, you know. I, I tried to come up with all of these, like, really like feministy explanations for why they didn't want me in the kitchen. Um, and then I realized that like, they just like looked at me and like when I did small talk, I would just like talk to them about my dog and like show them tattoos of my dog and like show them pictures of my dog. And then they were like, we don't want you anywhere near our food. <laughs> like, um, cause you know, it was just like a pattern I noticed where they were like, Oh, please. No, 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 don't go near our food. Um, they were, um, so, you know, conclusions about feminism is something that I very quickly learned to not make. Um, they were just, uh, I, I just noticed a pattern. Like my mom was in her like early fifties when I started researching the book and she was, um, separating from my dad And some of the women in the book were also in their like late 40s, mid 40s. Um, and they were various, you know, some were separating from their husbands. Some of them were widows. Some of them they were in various states of um, partnership. But there was something that they had in common, which is that they really wanted a party <laughs> um, or just like or would, would like scold me about how I was wasting my youth or, or, or like how I wasn't like dressed slutty enough. Um, <laughs> they were, they were just going through a lot of things. And like, you know, when I would visit them, um, you know, the second time or when we would text or, or send pictures, they were, um, it was just like seeing a kid like through, you know, the teenage years, they were just, going through so many different versions of themselves, just like my mom was. Um, and, and it was really, it was really exciting to see. And it was really fun to see, but there was also a tinge of regret. And when I pressed them, um, they would tell me things like why they really married when they married or when they, or, you know, when I pressed them about whether they really wanted to have kids, you know, and they all had kids. Um, they told me things 
And then they told me th- that to not tell their kids. They didn't tell me not to write about it. But, you know, they, <laughs> they, they're like, I've never told my kids this. Like, I married because I wanted to escape my parents' home. Or I didn't, you know, I, I had kids, but I wanted to leave them. You know, I came here because I wanted, I didn't want to be a mom or a grandma. Um, there, were, there were just different things that they were saying that, um, about choice. And, I, uh, and my mom was also making, having lots of conversations with me about the choices I had versus the choices she had when she was young. Thank you. Um, so kind of sort of shifting gears a bit here, I wanted to ask, um, talk about migrant children and and your sort of examination of their, the brain activity of migrant children was really eye-opening. What role do you think that, that the family separation and generational trauma play in the mental health of undocumented migrants and the children of undocumented migrants? Can you speak to that? I don't think it's like different than the than the than the impact of childhood separation that the separation from parents plays on, you know, any child. Um, you know, like I, I I think about this moment and children who have witnessed um, their families be completely devastated by COVID, or children who have seen their their parents and their communities be devastated by the opioid epidemic. Um, these are all pretty traumatic events um, that have a like a political um, a, a political origin and that devastate communities and destroy families, mm-hmm. um, and they will have an impact on the children. I think, you know, I I try to be careful with this because there is a way that this observation can be taken to mean that there's going to be like generations of kids that have like um, behavioral issues and mental health issues in a way that like blames the kids or makes us have generalizations about communities or demographics and does not lead to us having early interventions into mental health investments in communities and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I would just say like, you know, obviously there are going to be problems um, I can speak for myself, which is like, um, I mean, um, <laughs> there have been issues, you know, like if you're separated from your parents when you're a kid, there are issues. But, you know, also I feel like there's such a like there's like such a moment right now where people are just like really interested in trauma. There's just like such an interest in trauma. And I really want get, to get away from that because um I also know so many young people who have also been separated from their parents who um, really who really um, who really reject that narrative of making that the dominant narrative of their lives. So you know, for so long, every therapist that I went to was like, "Just think about how much that hurt you." And I was like, "I don't think I care." Um, and they were like, but it is the defining like theme of your life. Think about how much harm it caused you. And I understand that it did, right? But it's not something I think about. But there was so much pressure, especially from Americans, to think about the harm that my parents caused me and to think about how uniquely like tortured I was over it my entire childhood. But it's so common in my community. And it's something that my parents and I never had to reconcile over. Um, I, we joke about it. Like it's not, it's not an issue for me. There are things that really do cause me a lot of pain. Like, like the time when, like the first time that I wore red lipstick, my dad said, you look like a prostitute. I'm still angry at him about that. And, you know, he would also try to control what I did with my body. Like, you know, um, (laughs) we had so many fights about him trying to control my body that's an issue that I still have and I'm working out in therapy and that like my father, if he's still like, if he sees a new tattoo or something like the machismo and the trying to say what I do with my body, that's a thing that I have to work out and that he and I actively have issues with leaving me in Ecuador. I would have left me in Ecuador, you know, like, but I, I do think that the, that there's like an American fixation on the children at the border and the separation thing. And like, there's other violences that happen 
to like Latino kids in the United States. Like, you know, it would be nice if we went to a public school where we had like textbooks that weren't falling apart, you know? Uh, I would like to ask you about the chapter Miami in a specific, uh, like how you pay attention to the links between uh, blackness and migration. And um, I think like this analytical move that you do in the book is important because it challenges common erasures in, in the discourses uh, about Latinidad. And I wanted to ask you, what type of work do you think needs to be done in relation to black migration in, from Latin America? I mean, I'm just going to say like, um, more, like more, more creative work. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm always just going to say that, I mean, you know, I always just say like, people need to buy books because that is what makes publishers invest in writers. And like, people need to buy books that are like wacky and people need to support writers who aren't cops. Let me explain. So like, I think that there is just such a, <laughs> there's just such a boring like um, scene of like writing that just feels to me like, like, like eating dry oatmeal. It's just like, you know, I, I it's just like, I, I feel like I, I have to eat it because I don't want to go hungry. And like, it's just like, it's just not appetizing for me. Um, it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of taking a break from writing. So the metaphors aren't good, but like, um, it's just, it's just there, there people need to support writers who are experimental and who are like really fucking with genre and are really like, like fucking with institutions and who don't care about not being invited to, um, nice dinners and like, who don't care about, you know, thank you for inviting me, but not being invited to universities who like don't care about special appointments. If you support those writers, those writers will have money so they don't need those like institutional affiliations because if they have those institutional affiliations, they're going to not be radical and, or if they'll be radical in ways that are institutionally sanctioned, like you, like, you have to support a counterculture. So I think that like, in, in order for, like you're asking, like, I, I think that they're, 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 for writers of color, there needs to be like support from readers so that we don't just seek support from billionaires um, in order to make art or like support from universities in order to make art, because that's how you're going to get interesting art that's honest and that's like transgressive. And I think what writers of color or like, you know, trans writers or the most marginalized writers want is just freedom to make art, you know? So what do I want from like black immigrant writers? I want them to have the financial freedom to make transgressive art and not have to be pigeonholed into writing like really, you know, probably if they want to make money right now, they're going to have to write about being a black immigrant. What if they don't want to? You know, you have to support them by buying books. Yeah, very well said. Um, all right, do one more? Yep. Okay, well, um, you know, your book, as you've mentioned before, as as was said, stated, was released during the pandemic, right? Um, and so it kind of got me thinking about some of the things that you wrote about and, and how the pandemic can play a role in some of these similar situations. So, you know, with many migrants being dubbed essential workers, it, it kind of going back to that, um, the, the ground zero bit in the, the delivery boys, et cetera. Um, you know, what are your reflections on undocumented labor during and related to the pandemic? I know that's not something you touched upon in the book, but I wondered if you had any reflections on it since. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess like people really um, depended on delivery work during the pandemic. And it was super distressing for me to see so many you know, to see everyone like stay at home and have delivery people out there, you know, on the front lines. And 
at first there was like, will they be considered essential workers for the vaccine and stuff? I'll tell you, it was strange for me. We went to Whole Foods the other day with my partner um, because we went, I don't know, we were doing errands and then we stopped by Whole Foods and there was such a distinction, a class distinction between people who were shopping at Whole Foods because they had the money to shop at Whole Foods and the people who were there because they were doing like the Instacart who, who were working to do the deliveries. And it felt like so fucking awful. Like I had to get out. I said, we can't, we can't shop here. Like we can't shop here. And we also can't, we can't do this. Like my thing were, during the pandemic where people, you know, every event that I did, I did so many events. People said like, what can I do? Like, what can I do about the children at the border? And I was like, you, you're not a judge. You're not a lawyer. You can't do anything about the children at the border. You can do things in your own community. Like you can be nice to the people that make your, your, your breakfast sandwich in the morning and you can tip at least 20%. Um, all the time to service workers. Um, because I have seen people that I know who like think that tipping $4, $5 is, is good. It's, you know, it's not. Um, I was raised entirely on my father's tips. Um, like I survived on my father's tips. And so that's very important to me. Um, but um, yeah, I saw, I saw sort of the class just, the, the, and, and I saw people and I saw people who didn't notice and I saw people who didn't care. Um, and, and so I think it's also important to like notice and to care aside from tipping well. And so I think, um, yeah, so I think the pandemic just really made the class distinctions really noticeable. Yeah, absolutely. So we hope the interview serves as an invitation to read the book. And also, and if you already read the book, it's an, an invitation to reconsider the, the topics, the, the stories that she presents on it. So what do you think of the event, uh, Rebecca? Honestly, I really appreciated the insights that she gave toward her own experiences and those of the individuals that she interviewed, such as like the day laborers in New York, the delivery workers, uh, women throughout the different communities that she engaged with, and even her parents, you know, pulling your parents into a narrative like this can be a little bit controversial, perhaps at times, or difficult to to tackle. And I think she did a fantastic job with it. You yeah, know, she did like a, a, I was interested talking about like this idea of the parents also. It was like interesting the way she interconnected, yeah, her own upbringing and her relationship with the father with the idea of el patriarcado in Latin America, right? And to think about patriarchy and to think about like Latin American and U.S. Latinx uh, identities as one that are marked by these male center identities or views. And that was like, I feel like that was important. Yeah. An important gesture. And, and I, I particularly enjoyed the, the Q and a session that she had with the students in the audience, you know, their questions were really insightful and raw and, and very real, you know, they were, they were interested in the ways in which their own experiences as children of migrants aligned with the things that Cornejo Vicencio was discussing. And I really wish that we could have included some of that here, but we didn't end up recording that portion of the event because initially I couldn't hear, you know, we knew that the student questions wouldn't come across on the microphone and I didn't realize that she would be repeating them before she answered them. So we had stopped the recording prior to that, but you know, it was just, you could really see how the students responded almost viscerally to her answers, you know, nodding and like very, very assertive agreements or connections with that, you know, to, to our questions, they were, yeah, they were into that, but like more importantly to their own questions, right? Just that fact that she was someone who, who represented a part of them that they don't often get to see in a position mm -hmm. like she was in, you know, yeah. I, I got the sense that they appreciated hearing from someone who could relate to their own experiences, you know, whether or not they're undocumented as well mm -hmm. or have been, you know, I could I could feel their satisfaction with with how she answered their questions. So it was really. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And she definitely delivers the the intensity of of the lived experiences of migrants uh, and of the uh, uh, difficulties of being a, a migrant and, an, uh, and perhaps an undocumented person in the united states yeah mm -hmm. 
I was also thinking that in this and other interviews, I have noticed that uh, Cornejo Villavicencio keeps the discussion on migration center on practical ways that people can help migrants survive in the U.S. Yes. And uh, in order to do that, she avoids abstract discourses or policy discussion because most people can't really participate in those. Right. For instance, she has advocated for tipping generously to the library people and working in, in service industry. I love in the that. interview. Yeah, yeah. And in the interview, she also commented that one way of promoting and opening the doors of Afro-Latinx writers doing needed work on migration or other radical topics is to actually go to the store, physical or online, and buy their book. Yeah. Yes. And her comments make me think about how Afro-Latinx writers need people, communities of readers who economically support their work throughout the year, not only during Black History <laughs> or Latinx Heritage Months or as it happened during 2020 while Black people were in the street protesting for racial justice. Yes, actual like tangible actions that can be taken and not necessarily big, grandiose actions either there there are these moments that like you can just do something little and that does start to make a difference yeah that and, and it's also about the daily lives of migrants she's concerned about the daily lives of migrants and uh, the daily life of the undocumented and we see that in, in in her book and we see that in the way she speak about the topic yeah she's concerned about how a regular day happens yeah mm -hmm to a migrant, to an, uh, to an undocumented person, right? And how can we think about their life from that perspective, that very quotidian perspective? Yeah, and she does it in a fantastic way that avoids sort of glorifying traumas or romanticizing traumas, which I think is is also crucial to, to this entire course. Or the other side, like the the heroic uh, narrative or the construction of, of the migrant as this superhero who surpasses all obstacles. And yes. all. Yeah, they're just everyday people. <laughs> yeah, living and, and struggling and loving and, and enjoying themselves, but also suffering at times and, and dealing with the uh, but uh, finding ways to heal the process of migration. Yes. All right. So, you know, as usual, we want to keep a little bit of our tradition in our in our structure here. We're going to lay out some recommendations for you of other books that you might run out and, and purchase, just like we were talking about. <laughs> The first one that I want to recommend is Once I Was You by Maria Hinojosa. And my students in the Latinas class read it in the spring semester last year. We're not doing it this semester, but I, I hope to uh, return to it. <laughs> thank you. Yes, I'm like, <laughs> read something. Yeah, yeah I, I hope to return to it in future semesters. You know, this book is an honestly, an intimate experience of growing up Mexican-American, specifically on the south side of Chicago. But it also documents the experiences of the immigration detention camps because, you know, Jose is a, a reporter, right? She reported for different news outlets. And in the pages of her book, she offers a personal and eye-opening account of how the rhetoric around immigration has not only long informed American attitudes towards outsiders, but also enabled willful negligence and profiteering at the expense of our country's most vulnerable populations. And this has led to the basically the broken system that we have today. So, you know, Jose's memoir paints a vivid portrait of how we as a nation got here and also what it means to be a survivor, a feminist, a citizen and a journalist who owns her own voice while striving for the truth. Also, it's important to mention that Inojosa host and executive produced the, the very important podcast, Latino USA, that has been on the air, so to speak, yeah, for years presenting topics that inform yeah, our understanding of Latinidad uh, in the United States. And she did an interview with Carla Cornejo Villavicencio, so you can go. That we also recommend, uh, definitely. Yes, yeah, a great interview as well. Go find right. that episode. 
Yeah. <laughs> so my recommendation, my first recommendation is going to be Native Country of the Heart by iconic feminist Shetty Moraga. We talked about her recently when we were discussing the film uh, Mosquita y Mary. And uh, this particular book is a memoir about motherhood, Chicana lives, her stories, and queer identities. In it, Moraga recounts her mother's upbringing as a field worker and then as a cigarette girl in the late 1920s, Tijuana. Uh, Moraga compares her mother's early years to her own as a daughter of Mexican and an Anglo father, growing in different areas of California during the 60s in a somewhat economically better and less abusive situation. Moraga also tells the story of his formative years in New York City as a queer feminist and her return to California to work and to live close to her mother and her community. The stories of these two women and of Chicanas at large are woven together in an intimate narration. Morag is driven to uncover forgotten remnants of U.S.-Mexican diaspora, its indigenous origins, and a story of cultural and memory loss. I really like that because it, it tackles, you know, stories going back to the early 20th century. It's not just it, it really drives home that idea that this is nothing new. Right. That these these narratives have been ongoing in this discovery for one's narrative within the context of U.S. Chicano, in this case, uh, situations is is ongoing and ever a battle. Yeah. And I think like the, the book in many ways is a very mature book that could be considered a history of Chicana and Chicanos in the Southwest. Yeah, the way that she presents the topic and the way she uses the personal, yeah, the theory of the fresh that we the, of the flesh that we talked before, right? In order to talk about the the Chicano uh, cultural landscape, it's uh, it's very eye opening. All right, my next recommendation is Finding Latinx in Search of the Voices: Redefining Latino Identity, and this is by Paula Ramos. In this book by debut author and journalist Paula Ramos, she travels to near and far corners of the country in search of Latino voices that illustrate a growing movement and represent a community of young Latinos that hold more political, social and cultural relevance today than ever before. The book takes the author and the readers uh, on a journey of discovery and empowerment, shedding light on the voices that have been overlooked for years from Afro-Latinos to trans-Latinos, from border town Latinos to the young Cuban-Americans in Miami and much, much more. You know, it's another one of those where she she weaves her own story into these investigations that she's doing as well. My second uh, recommendation is going to be Bird of Paradise by writer, journalist and documentarian Raquel Cepeda. This is uh, also a memoir, uh, but also a travelogue. Yeah, and in, in it, yeah, uh, we see a journey into Cepeda DNA ancestry, but also into her own sociogeographical history. Uh, Cepeda recounts her experiences in different sites like the Paraiso District in Santo Domingo, several Latinx and Black neighborhoods in New York City and Northern Africa. The memoir delves into abusive love relationship, father-daughter confrontations, 80s and 90s hip-hop culture, and ultimately Dominican, Afro, and Arab cultures. Cepeda explained that she reconstructed her own identity as a Dominican and Afro-Latina by remembering her multinational upbringing, unpacking, just like Moraga, intergenerational trauma, and by exploring literally the origins of her family uh, via DNA testing and traveling. Yeah. And it is compelling to read Cepeda's memoir alongside her documentary, Some Girls, in which she takes a group of New York City high, uh, high school girls of Dominican ancestry to La República uh, to explore the indigenous and colonial history of the region and contemporary Caribbean culture as a form of therapy. I, I'm so glad you put this one on the list because this I was going back and forth when I was trying to decide which ones to to put. I, I knew I wanted the Hinojosa one and then I was like, well, do I put the Paula Ramos one or do I do I put the Raquel Cepeda book? I, I was going back and forth. So I'm really excited to see that you you added this one to the list as well, because it, it is actually a very excellent read. Fascinating to to look at it through this like this DNA element, right? A lot of people think of the social social approaches and she's saying like, let me look to DNA and see what what that's supposedly saying. So 
Yeah, and for those who are interested or love yeah, hip hop culture, the book is also fantastic to explore, yeah. Uh, a first account of, of that era of the 80s and 90s. So thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode and listening to Cornejo Villavicencio's reading and our interview with her. What do you think? Let us know. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at LatinXVisions. Send us a message or email us at latinexhibitions at gmail.com. We're interested in your thoughts and feedback. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or honestly, wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review, please. Estamos a la escucha. Cuídense. Dale. Until next time. <laughs>